Hello and welcome to One and Done TV. I am one of your co-hosts, Ian Hamilton. And I'm the other single one of your co-hosts, John Polking. And this is the podcast where we review television shows that were cast asunder. Throw it into the fire. Destroy it, destroy it, destroy it. Which is a movie reference, but soon to be an Amazon TV show reference. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then I don't know who you are or what rock you've been under. We review television shows that were canceled after or during one season. That's right, their first season and their only season. We watch TV shows that were canceled and then we review them and then we tell you about you know, why they were canceled and stuff like that. John, what I miss? I think you said everything and nothing at the same time, introducing our listeners to this concept. I have a tremendous ability to waste everyone's time. Uh, we all feel it. We all feel the heavy weight of your overexposition. Uh, but what we do is we do a little samba on the graves of these shows, and we look into what they did, uh, what they left behind, and ultimately what made them one and done. Today we're talking about 2004's Cracking Up on Fox, starring Jason Schwartzman and created by Mike White. It was a sitcom about mental health that ultimately led to a nervous breakdown. But before we talk about that, let's talk about what we're watching now. John, what the hell are you watching these days? Have I talked about Below Deck yet? No, is that the Star Trek? Oh no, TV animated. Oh no, no. Yeah, that didn't sound like your kind of thing. What is it? No, it's it's way more my cup of things. So, uh, Bravo, your cup of thing. It's a cup of thing. Bravo's (laughs) reality show about mega yachts and the people that work on them. It is glorious. I look. I was looking for a show that had a deep catalog and that was utter garbage. And I found it in Below Deck. Wow. So it follows the the deckhands, the uh, stewards, and the chef, and the captain of these, like, huge yachts that people spend, like, $150,000 for, like, a three-day charter, uh, extravagant food, gorgeous Caribbean setting, and drama. Uh, I have three episodes or three seasons into it right now. It's got nine seasons plus like five seasons of another spinoff and another three seasons of another oh spinoff. My God. So I am in for a treat. It is wild. I just got to a point where there was a fire in the galley uh, because the chef didn't uh, clean not out. Not the galley. Not the galley. The chef uh, wasn't properly cleaning his oven. And when the captain was like, we need you to go. Uh, after this charter and he's like no I'm going to leave right now and uh, one of his friends on the boat didn't want him to leave so she took off all her clothes and dove into the ocean and swam to another boat was it another mega yacht it was another it wasn't like one of these big mega yachts but it was another yacht yeah oh so it was just a tiny mega yacht yeah it was a tiny mega yacht a miniature mega yacht so yeah Below Deck has been everything for me. Uh, now, are, are we are we sure that this show isn't a plot by the CIA to just get cameras onto these Russian oligarch mega yachts, John? Nah, because it's in the Caribbean. Oh, well, I'm sure there's a Russian oligarch with a Caribbean uh, harbor. 
You don't think so? Nah, it's too sunny. If you, if you can afford a mega yacht, you can afford a harbor. That's how the old saying goes anyway. Um, if I'm looking for a uh, show with like a deep catalog, I usually go to one of those investigation discovery shows that have been on for five years, but somehow have 18 seasons already. Mm-hmm. Like a mystery. I don't know. Usually those shows are about some stupid mysteries that they just half the show is uh, later on and previously on, you know, like it's 50% of it is setting up after the commercial break and also talking about what happened before the commercial break. I love that stuff. I need shows that I can like dip in and out of though. That's oh, no, I, I, I totally understand. I mean, for me, that's like a Mad Men, that's a Seinfeld, that's a Frasier, Simpsons, Family Guy, uh, you know, something where I'm like, I just want to be on my phone, but also I want to listen to my friends because like my cousin said when he was about five, don't worry, mommy, the TV is my friend. <laughs> Um, but if I'm going to plug anything I watched, I, uh, recently went to the South by Southwest film festival and there was just a phenomenal short, uh, called act of God, which was about a guy with CP who is, uh, just trying to get to work and trying to get over his bitterness with his reliance on normal people and, uh, the able bodies of the world. And uh, he, it's pretty much about his chase to get a hundred dollar bill because he can't pick things up off the floor. And he is just so determined to get this hundred dollar bill. It is a funny, interesting, uplifting short. And I don't know if it's going to be on the internet soon or what, but search act of God or give them some money somehow, figure it out. I I loved it. I loved it so much. Yeah. But does it involve millionaires trying to uh, have a good time only by buying 1942 Don Julio tequila? Did I not bring up that eventually the hundred dollar bill blows in the wind onto a Harbor onto a mega yacht and spoiler alert he ends up partying with some hot hoochie mamas and drinking liqueur <laughs> drinking liqueur liqueur is light oh liqueur you know, liqueur. liqueur okay yeah liqueur i just mean thought you were saying liqueur cocktail stuff gotcha fun alcohol madness Speaking of uh, fun alcohol madness, I think you know what time it is, Ian. Oh, I do. It's showtime. Five, four, three, two, one, showtime! Cracking up, a show about a grad student in psychology who is sent to live in the home of a wealthy benefactor of his school to personally treat their troubled nine-year-old son. As it turns out, the nine-year-old is the normal one, And it's the rest of the family that's insane. (laughs) There's no knowing where we're going. There's no earthly way of knowing. I did think about Gene Wilder while I did that. You did channel him quite nicely, yeah. So this this came out in 2004. 
And just for a little bit of context about what was going on in TV at the time, uh, this actually becomes an integral to this show specifically. But American Idol was regularly getting 26 million viewers. My God. Twice a week, Mondays and Tuesdays. For funsies, you should know that this was the William Hung year. What was William Hung's song again? She bang, she bangs. Oh, it oh, was. baby, yes. Okay, I was thinking that, but then I'm like, uh, I was like, it certainly it can't be that, but. No, it, it, was a, it was a whole dance too. A lot of jokes on The Office and, oh, he did make an appearance in Arrested Development too, didn't he? Oh, time. yeah, because the William Hung jury. <laughs> uh, uh, and it's uh, a mock trial with Jay Ryan. Jay Ryan with Jay Ryan Hold. Exactly. William Hung, though, he, he really captivated America's attention because Simon Cowell ripped that sweet man apart. And I'm so glad he got his money. He Me got too. paid. OK, and I'm guessing he got laid. Uh, also, CSI was the top-rated show of the year, with CSI Miami coming in at number five. So the top five shows in America were two CSIs and American Idol twice. And a the whole only... lot of sunglasses. <laughs> the only sitcoms in the top 25 shows that year were Everybody Loves Raymond. Deborah. <laughs> Deborah. Deborah. Give me a good Deborah, John. Deborah, go for it. Yeah, that's it. Uh, two and a half men and Boston Legal. Are we counting Boston Legal as a sitcom? Uh, I guess I thought it was. I see it as like a light drama. I, mm. Granted, I never watched Boston Legal. But... See, I, I see it as a more serious comedy, but because of the Emmy rules, because it's an hour-long show, it would be in the drama category these days. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily true at the time. Are you trying to tell me Monk would have been a drama That's if these exactly rules were I'm in place you. now? Mm-hmm. It's a jungle out there, John, let me tell you. Yeah. Um, the only other Fox show... Uh, the only other show Fox had in the top 25 was House, and 24 was on the rise as Arrested Development struggled to survive its second season. Other reality shows like Survivor, The Amazing Race, Extreme Makeover Home Edition, and <sighs> The Apprentice Ugh. were riding high. Yeah. It's a tough time for Fox in general. Yeah, but it was a boon for reality shows. It yeah. was like post Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and also really getting into... I feel like Survivor was one of the first big reality shows what do you what, what do you think of i say from like a network standpoint yeah survivor was the biggest turning point and then right, it really broke through and then probably about a year or so after this this is when we got like the cable reality boom when mm. bravo was taking off and uh, yeah like bravo right. was around around this time but there wasn't a reality show for everyone and everything right now Right. Was, this was it was, right it was much more the... competition based. And mm-hmm. then we got into good old cheap trash. Well, we talked about this on a previous episode, but the Osbournes came out at what, like 2002? 2001 or 2002. Yeah. Right. So it was, this was all happening. It was crescendoing at this point because these are also cheap shows to make. Um, with, if you can make a show for cheaper than you can make a sitcom or a drama, 
and get, you know, twice to 10 times as many viewers, then it's pretty obvious. And what we have here is a, what is essentially a cheap show, just basically a family in a house, but it's a very big house. That's right. And it was created by Mike White, who you may know as Ned Schneebly in School of Rock. Uh, But what you may not know is he also wrote School of Rock before creating Cracking Up. He wrote on Dawson's Creek, which kind of surprised me. Yeah. uh, Freaks and Geeks, as well as penning the movies Orange County and his breakout feature, Chuck and Buck. Have you ever seen Chuck and Buck? I was literally just about to ask you the same thing. No, I haven't. I feel like I should. Mm. Mike White as a filmmaker is very hit and miss for me. There are Mm -hmm. some stuff of his that I love. There's some stuff of his that I think the, okay. I was going to say, what's one you don't like? Yeah. I don't like The Year of the Dog. Oh, never seen it. Yeah, it was his directorial. Oh, that's his first one he directed. It was his first one that he directed. It was very distracting, I think, stylistically. And I think Orange County's fine. Um, I've never I seen think the... Orange County is like a perfect, easy movie to watch for me. Like, yeah, that's true. It can just be on, and I can be doing something else, and I can be like, Haha, Jack Black or, oh, Colin Hanks, and then Harold Ramis is here. Wow. Oh yeah, he gets super high in it. That's right. Yeah, that he uh, somehow is tricked into having weed ingested into him, which, or maybe it's on accident, which uh, funny enough also happens in cracking up, but we'll get to that. Yeah. He also was a co-writer, I think, on Pitch Perfect 3. Are we talking about Harold Ramis or Mike White? Sorry, Mike White. We're still talking Mike White. And, you know, to tie it together to the reality boom, post this, Mike White uh, did Amazing Race a couple seasons of that with his dad and with his boyfriend. Yeah, I think two seasons with his dad and one with his boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And he also was on a season of Survivor, Mm -hmm. not Celebrity Survivor, just Survivor. Yeah. Very interesting dude, Mike White. Yeah, super interesting guy. Very thoughtful Mm -hmm. writer, which is what I really appreciate about his work in general. We'll get into it later, too. He's very specific and very controlling as well. He cares a lot about the product itself. Mm -hmm. So that's Mike White. And before we go deep and dissect Cracking Up, we're going to take a few minutes just to tell you who's in it and what happens on a broad level in case you haven't checked it out. This is The Exposition Dump. So normally when we do an exposition dump, we talk about the characters first, and then we talk about the overall arc of the show, just to lay the pipe so that we could talk about whatever the heck we want afterwards. This show's a little different, though, because the pilot lays so much pipe so quickly about the setup of the characters. I'd say by minute eight of the pilot, you know who everyone is, what their motivations are, what their games are and generally the the setup of the show, right? Like, do you think it's probably the quickest I've seen I, I think, always, a setup? I always appreciate that in a pilot where they just get, sometimes I don't even need it to be cute or clever. If they just get out the information you need to know really quickly so that we can just get on with it, 
I do tend to appreciate that. Like, I think AP Bio did that as well, where it was mm-hmm. like, I'm this person. I do this thing. Here's my problem. Let's just play in this world now. Exactly. And first minute of the pilot, we meet our main character, Ben Baxter, played by the wonderful Jason Schwartzman. Uh, he, he was coming off of Rushmore. This was post-board to death, right? Uh, no, this was pre-board to death. Pre-board but it was to death. Post, Sorry. Uh, it's not... I mean, this is like quite a few years after Rushmore, maybe yeah. like seven or eight. But, but Rushmore uh, was his big breakout and arguably is still his most popular role. At this point, too, he was pretty well known for the movie Slackers, which I oh, don't right. know why people thought that was a good movie at the time. No, it's it's terrible. Um, Actually, I watched it kind of recently with Natalie. It's uh, it's I don't know. It's somewhere product between, of its time. American, yes, exactly. That's a nice way of saying, yikes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was also in one of my favorites, I Heart Huckabees. I'm kidding. I hate I Heart Huckabees. Yeah. Do you like I Heart Huckabees? I've never seen it, but I love to make fun of how much you hate I Heart Huckabees. David O. Russell movies, I think in general, are quite good. Do not care for I Heart Huckabees. But Ben, is a, he's a psych grad student. He's in way over his head. Uh, we also, early on, he's talking with his uh, sex-obsessed best friend, Liam. Played you by... always have to have a sex-obsessed best friend, John. If Do you're you? writing a sitcom, you need it. Do you, though? Uh, Liam is played by David Walton, who was in another uh, Slackers-like movie. Uh, he was the antagonist in Fired Up, which came out a few years after this. Right, right. And uh, he was in the TV adaptation of About a Boy later. Very bro-y sort of he he's a guy who always looks like he's chewing gum even when he's not was that (laughs) you know what i mean though he's got that kind of mouth that like looks like it's actively going even if nothing is happening on it uh yes i like can't tell if it's an insult or not i think it is it's it's an observation and people could take or leave it whatever that is but by the first minute we John, meet... you look like you're always chewing cake. <laughs> He's just got one of those cake chewing mouths. <laughs> oh, look at him. Oh, uh, I don't know if I should take that as an insult. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we meet Ben's professor. Arguably like his favorite professor who I wrote this down because it is four sentences that show up that set up the show perfectly. The Uh professor just talks to Ben in a room and says, I've hit a wall with one of my patients, a nine-year-old boy. His parents are important to the university. I suggested a student in my graduate program could live in their house with their son. I promised I'd send my most talented student. Boom. Set up. Ben says yes. It sets up that Ben is good at what he's doing. Right away. Mm-hmm. So he's he's got a lot to learn, but he can he's got some promise. And so he's gonna go live with this family to help out this nine year old. And you know what, too? They hired a good, like classic actor to get like I mean, it's really rough, bad exposition. Like as an actor, it's hard to get lines like that that are so obvious and spoon feedy out naturally. And they got the guy who plays one of the the lead Skokie Nazi and Blues Brothers, and 
You know him, listeners, as the grandpa from Luck of the Irish, Disney Channel's classic original movie. But you could tell he's just like he's been acting his entire life. He's I wouldn't be surprised if he was like trained at the Irish Shakespeare company or something, you know. But he uh, he never shows back up, and I kind of couldn't believe that they got him just to do this one scene. But I was like, they need a solid person to do this exposition jump dump. And you know what? He did it. Four sentences. Boom. We've got our setup. Ben is then taken to uh, or drives over to the Beverly Hills mansion of the Shackleton family. So he's there to treat uh, nine-year-old Tanner Shackleton, uh, who's played by the actor Brett Lower. He's set up as the one that needs the most help, uh, but truly he's the straight person in the family, uh, the one that's just reacting to everyone. Uh, all the be- craziness. All the all the wild, wacky antics uh, that are perpetrated by, uh, he's got two parents, uh, two siblings. He's got his dad, Ted, played by Christopher McDonald, who is only, he's going to, okay, we're calling him Shooter. We're calling him Shooter McGavin for the rest of the show, right? Well, I said uh, people may know him as Shooter McGavin from Happy Gilmore, Shooter McGavin from Happy Gilmore, or a Shooter McGavin type from the movie Dirty Work. Yeah. Got the great big eyes, tall, intimidating presence. He's a tough guy, former athlete. He's the president of some sort of large pharmaceutical uh, company. So easy to understand where he got his millions, billions, whatever from. Then there's the matriarch of the family, Leslie, uh, played by Molly Shannon, uh, SNL, Wet Hot American Summer. Okay, you wrote this down. She was in Divorce? Oh, yeah. She was uh, one of the girl gang in Divorce. It was Molly Shannon was uh, Sarah Jessica Parker's best friend, married to Tracy Letts, who has a heart attack in the first episode. And they're so they're marriage is like an integral friendship with the divorcing couple's marriage. And yes, I am one of three people in the world that watched all three seasons of of Divorce. I don't know why. I think it's just because I love Thomas Hayden Church. Uh, And that is probably... I don't know why I stuck with it, okay? I just It was just a nice show for me to watch. And I could talk to your wife about it. And I could talk to Melissa about it. And those are the, we are the only three people in the, the world. The only that three people that, that watched all three seasons of Divorce. Yes. 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 Molly Shad is also great on the other two on HBO Max. One of right. the funniest show on TV, I think, right now as we record this. One of the or the? No, the. I the more My laughs God. per second, I think, in that show than anything that is currently airing. Okay, that's uh that's a high bar. Well, okay, John. Uh uh Sophie's Choice, How Ooh. to with John Wilson, or uh, that show you just said. The other two. You haven't watched the other two? No, we've talked about this. You need, okay, you need to. The Robbie the said that it's funnier. very much a show that you would like. That's yes. how he described the other two. Robbie said that? Yeah. Yeah, that's that. He tracks. was like, yeah, John would love that. <laughs> He's like, it's okay. It is, and, and now, listening to that, are you like Robbie would say that, right? Like, I would say all, Robbie would say that. Yes. Yeah, but when I'm doing an impression of you to Robbie, like he's like John would say that, you know. So I'm the bridge. We, and I would say Robbie sounds like this. Da ba. That's my Robbie impression. Pretty good. Thank you. 
Molly, Sh- Molly Shannon's uh, Leslie, uh, former cheerleader. She and Ted were high school sweethearts. Also, just generally an alcoholic and a nervous wreck. Uh, very neurotic, very over the top. They are. They have their offspring. Uh, there's their teen son Preston, played by Jake Sandvig. I don't know if I've seen him in anything. Uh, jockey, basketball player, also a bit sexually repressed, a lot of OCD tendencies as well. They've also got a teen daughter, Chloe, uh, played by Caitlin Wax, Watches, something like that. Yeah, I think it's Wax. Yeah. The the main love interest of Frankie Muniz in your favorite, My Dog Skip. No way. Oh, how'd I miss that? Yeah. Oh, My Dog Skip. Oh. My Dog Skip. Oh. You never wanted to watch My Dog Skip with me. So Ian and I had a thing growing up. Uh, where I got My Dog Skip on DVD. And probably for about three straight years in middle school, elementary school around that time, Ian would come over to my house and be like, can we watch My Dog Skip? We watched My Dog Skip once. I fell in love with it. Then I kept, we'd come over, we'd look through your DVD collection. I'd be like, we could watch My Dog Skip. And you'd be like, no, I hate you, Ian. And I have no heart. I would also throw some sort of heavy object at you, like a stapler or a, an empty clip of a gun. Yeah. And you were like, let's watch Euro Trip because that's true art and true uh-huh. comedy. There should have been nominated for a couple Oscars, most notably Best Original Song. But we, <laughs> we digress. Uh, Kayla Wax was the, the love interest in My Dog Skip. She's now the daughter who is a uh, cheerleader. Generally underdeveloped, though, I think as a character, more just sort of naive and go along with sort of the antics of the family. Mm -hmm. We meet uh, Dorsa as well, played by the actor Lillian Hurst, who looks so familiar to me. And I realized the comeback. She's Lisa Kudrow's assistant. The comeback. The comeback. Oh, God. I love the comeback. And I love the comeback of the comeback when they rebooted it on HBO Max, which here's a good question about the comeback. Can we still do it for one and done? And can we do the reboot as a one and done as well? Buddy, we cannot do that. (gasps) No. (laughs) But it was canceled and it didn't come back. The reboot is a second season. The reboot's a second season. It was like. 15 years stop, later. Stop. It should, Ian, they should both we are the ones done. that put these rules on ourselves, and therefore we will follow them to the I T. I think it is a good gimmick. It is a great gimmick. Unfortunately, go just, okay. I'm going to let Ian cry for a little bit uh, as we <laughs> I just want to get the Lisa Kudrow crowd in. We'll get the Lisa Kudrow crowd in. We'll get the friends people. We'll get them all. So Dorsa is the live-in housekeeper for the Shackletons. And generally when Ben meets the entire family, they see pretty, you know, all American standard. They all hug. Dorsa is the first sign of true distress in the pilot. She's like, get out of here, man. This is not what you want. Well, what I want, John, is to take a quick commercial break. So we'll be right back. And now a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us, oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. 
If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. As we progress through the pilot, we realize that Tanner is the sane one of the family. They say that his dog was put down because he pooped on the floor. Nope. Dog is still alive. Tanner just wanted to keep him because they didn't want uh, his parents to take him away. No, they called the dog Kojak and they said it was like a demon dog. And he was like, they're just mad at him because he pooped on the floor. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's it. Thank you. And as Ben is getting used to the house, he basically walks through a hallway where he interacts with the wilder side of each of the family members. He helps Molly Shannon break open a liquor cabinet he gets uh, taken into a car by uh, Ted to talk to him about sort of his controlling tendencies a little bit. He walks in on Chloe camming with her cheerleader moves. Which he for 2004 is it's like she pretty rudimentary ha- camming. Well, yeah. And she was really ahead of the game. She's like, yeah, I do cheers for people on my webcam. And yeah. you get the sense that they are not watching her for her cheers. She talks about. Toby Maguire's one of her fans and she wants to go over to his trailer park, like in the Valley or something yeah. like that. And he's like, it's I like, don't that's think not that's Toby Maguire. <laughs> and then we also walk in on uh, Preston shaving his entire body covered head to toe in uh, shaving cream. Mm-hmm. And the dog, we gets out, rips up the whole living room. Ben tries to blame it on Dorsa to help get her out of uh, this family because the whole thing is the family is keeping Dorsa's papers and Dorsa wants to get out. And so they're trying to fire her. But eventually they're like, no, we need Dorsa. And Ben my, says- My favorite part of that is they're like, Dorsa rips apart the uh, family room. She goes, and you did number two on the couch? My God, Dorsa, what did you eat? <laughs> Eventually, there's this whole number where, like, Leslie is singing down the stairs, and Ben is like, I'm out. I can't do this. But, of course, Tanner's like, you're going to leave me with these people? And so Ben says, okay, I'll stay. And that just generally sets up who everyone is. But each of the episodes kind of peels back a layer of the wacky antics of the Shackleton family. Uh, Ian, you want to talk about a couple of the following episodes? Sure. So in episode two, uh, Tanner walks in on Ben and his girlfriend, played by Zoe Deschanel, uh, having a sexual encounter with each other. The lay down no pants dance. That's right. (laughs) Uh, Which forces some hard conversations about sex with the Shackleton family. It turns out that the parents have never given the sex talk to the kids. Uh, Preston thinks boy, girl, dirty things are sick. And Chloe thinks any girl that does that stuff is a skank. The parents, as it turns out, have been sexually unsatisfied for years. And he's like, the first time we did it, we I rocked her world. And I've done it the same time every single t- <laughs> the same way every single time. What's the problem? So they've essentially only used one position for their entire marriage. Uh, the family basically freaks out about sex for 22 minutes. The episode ends with Tanner being like, hey, if I ever walk in on you and your girlfriend again, don't freak out. It's just sex. So Tanner is the most well-adjusted of all of them. Um, he has certainly learned what not to do from the older four members of that's the a family. Great, that's a great point that mm-hmm. I think he really has 
become so well adjusted as just an antithesis to everything that he's seen, which is a really interesting sort of psychological angle. Actually, takes, to make it a little personal, it's like I definitely see a bit of that in my younger brother, who's like seven years younger than me and the youngest in my family. He, very uh, similar to Tanner, who's nine and his uh, older siblings are like 16, 17. Yeah, that's true, because I feel like Kevin just opts out of situations sometimes. <laughs> like he sees everyone else going nuts and he's like, just slowly wheels away or just like stare, gives us this blank stare. That's just like, I do not care about this and I'm not going to get worried. Like I'm just, I'm just blanking you into submission. And uh, maybe it's a younger child thing. I don't know, but it uh, weirdly, it rang a bell for me. Um, So then episode three is called Scared Straight. And after Tanner is exposed to weed smell at Ben's university, uh, Ben basically confronts the parents and is like, you need to talk to Tanner about drugs. And they're like, drugs? Nobody does drugs. And then they're like, we need to make sure our kids don't do drugs. So they get Jack Black to come to the house, who is like a scared, straight drug counselor. Basically, mm-hmm. he he freaks everybody out into being like, you think drugs are cool? Look, what about this? This makes drugs not cool. And uh, the kids have never done drugs. So they're very, so it's kind of a confusing situation where he's like he's used to working with troubled teenagers and they had no interest in the first place. So yeah. he's just freaking out some kind of innocent kids. Yeah. The I'm sure the teens that he's used to dealing with are fight back, but both uh, like Preston and Chloe are the most like spongy, emotional spongy people I've seen in a long time. Yeah, and they're the very show. they're very submissive as well. So he's like, "Do this," and they're like, "Okay, whatever. We'll listen to you because we are not we are not uh, able to handle this aggressive personality." Um. Then Ben accidentally gets himself and the parents stoned with weed cake while the counselor is there in the room. In the end, Tanner is once again the most well-adjusted person. We love Tanner. Right. So we love we, Tanner. We got two episodes in a row. Tanner is exposed to something. Ben is like, hey, we need to talk to Tanner about this. Everybody reacts to it inappropriately. Here, I want to throw a quick question at you. Is Ben the problem? Oh, no, 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 no. I don't think Ben's the problem at all because he does open up uh, conversations that the parents have avoided. He does, uh, like the dad at the beginning of the last episode, which we'll get to, it's a prom episode. He's like, my girl, my, uh, my daughter's not going to prom with some musician. I hate prom. And Ben is like, why are you freaking out about her at her about this and also why did you say you hate prom and he kind of gets down to it's not that the dad is mad at her he's just has a bad memory uh and a bad emotional attachment to prom and that's why he's lashing out at everybody so i actually do think you know ben is just the quintessential jason schwartzman sensitive nice guy who's just trying to help and i think he does yeah. Do you think Ben well, is the problem? Well, as the great Nelson Muntz once said, I prefer illusion to despair. 
Dude, so, I love that quote, and I almost use it the other day, and I think about you when I use it every time. I say it all the time. You do. I do. No, he's not the problem. He is. He he does tend to be the catalyst to get these conversations going, but they are good conversations. Yeah, I mean, have. it's when anyone is confronted with their problems uh, or a problematic thing they're saying or an idea they've held on to for so long that's actually holding them back. I think everyone just has this period where they have to freak out for a minute while they let go of everything and reassess their life until it can even out and they can actually learn a lesson. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that Ben, too, isn't pitch perfect all the time. Sorry. Oh, Mike White White. co-wrote Pitch Perfect 3. Yeah, I was going to put it. Damn, you took my joke. I was going to say, (laughs) I was going to say, I need to put it in Mike White language. He's not pitch perfect three in everything. Oh, sorry. He does. He does have his his issues. He, I mean, like, like episode four, the the panic room episode, mm-hmm. uh, where Kyle Gass is the guest star as a pickle eating, uh, underwear clad intruder. So the family gets a a panic room, and when they accidentally get trapped inside the panic room, it's Molly Shannon's character who's the one that's calming Jason Schwartzman down. I I like that as a turn. Yeah, that was a great switch because she is so helpless for most of the episode. And then eventually she finds her, her mama bear because she does need to protect her children and she does need to control the situation. And I think the, the lesson in there is kind of like, she's not used to having to do that. So she's always deferred to other people. Right. And then when the moment actually happens and she needs to step up, she does because she's so used to Ted taking care of her problems for her because probably he wants to, you know, he's an overbearing personality and she's just used to him taking control of situations and probably, you know, yelling them into submission uh, or business personing sales guying them <laughs> yeah. submission. I'm the president of a company. Okay, well, problem solved. Yeah, and in general... That's the thing that makes me, I mean, we'll get into what we think of the show overall in a sec, but it makes me yearn for what the show could have been for sure. Because Mm. if we gave these characters a little bit more breathing room, Mm -hmm. I would like to see some growth. We we do have evidence of growth and it is uh, not typical, I think, for what other sitcoms might have done. No. And I heard this comparison when putting something like Seinfeld in the same conversation as something like Parks and Rec, where Seinfeld, they just had the, the characters. The characters didn't change. They no hugging, the same, no learning. No hugging, no learning. They were the same from the first episode to the last. Parks and Rec, everyone evolves. You know, Ron gets softer. Leslie listens a little bit more. Tom becomes uh, a little bit more entrepreneurial. Mark Brandanowitz uh, turns into a ghost. <laughs> and I, the show set, I was worried that the show, the show would be too much of the, the Seinfeld, but be, but because it's so big and wacky and it is so character based, I think it, there were sprinklings of, oh, th- there could be some development. Yeah. But because it's so big and, big and wacky, like they could have easily ended up just being, Big, goofy, 
personalities that never learn anything and that that would have gotten old right exactly Very it definitely quickly. would have gotten stale mm-hmm. so I'm glad we didn't get there but we did still get you know a lot of hard-headedness uh one of my favorite i think examples of that was the fifth episode uh which was called grudge match and in it tanner is an artist who might need encouraging but the family is so obsessed with athletics that there's no as they say, there's no Tanner section in the trophy room. So Ted works to turn Tanner into a jock, but Tanner just wants to draw. So Ben and Liam play Preston and Ted in two-on-two basketball and end up destroying the Shackletons. Uh, But then it's all about the darker side of uh, competition. And, you know, you don't need to be a winner all the time. And, it does have one of my favorite B plots too, which is we find out that Leslie used to be a cheerleader, but got kicked off of the squad because she had these sort of weird, as Ted describes it, voodoo-like trance dances that she would do. She was artistically expressing herself through her cheers, which just is amazing fodder for the more physical side of Molly Shannon. I was going to say, if it wasn't Molly Shannon, that could have easily been a bad cheesy sitcom plot point but Mm -hmm. she really pulls it off i thought i was gonna hate that part and actually i ended up loving it as well yeah there's a part of the episode where she comes out in in a cheerleader uniform to cheer on this basketball game and her daughter like chloe is embarrassed that she did like weird stuff but then she starts doing the weird stuff and it's like oh this is actually kind of interesting but the thing I love about the cheerleader costume isn't the actual cheerleader outfit. It's that Molly Shannon's wearing knee pads. <laughs> so you know that she was like, I'm just going to let my body do the talking and I'm going to protect myself while I'm doing it. Yeah. That's... It's such a little thing that works so well. Good little visual gag that tells you a lot about what's going on. Or maybe it was on. just a necessity because Molly Shannon just knew she would be throwing her body around and didn't want to get... That's her true. Knees destroyed on a on a basketball court. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm 30, and my knees would get destroyed if I did that. So, for sure. Also, my biggest observation from episode five is that only rich people play basketball with collared shirts on. John, that is true. That is such a rich person thing to do. Because rich people don't sweat. Really? Ever? You they must glisten. be broke. You must be so broke. <laughs> John had a had a couple work things the other day, and he sweat through four shirts in a day. Yeah, I recorded with Ian later in the day, and I was on my fifth shirt, and then I sweat through that recording of this podcast. Yeah, famous for his pit stains. Oh, poor John. Mm. Yeah, poor sweaty John. So then we get to episode six, which is the last episode, and it's all about prom. Flowers arrive for Chloe as a prom invite from the. Coolest, hottest guy in school. Andy's in a band. Ted has better because Leslie went to prom with the musician instead of him. So he hates, he just hears the word he's in a band. He's like, I hate musicians. No daughter of mine's going to prom with a musician. Ben tracks down this old fling to try to sort of demystify him to Ted and show him, look, this guy's just working in a coffee shop. He's not this monolithic figure that you've built up in your head and so he thinks that'll be the end of that but ted is so thrilled with how poorly this guy is doing in his mind that he invites him and his girlfriend played by amy sedaris who owns the coffee shop 
over for dinner so that Leslie can see what a disaster his life has turned out to be. And of course, hilarity ensues. The B story of this is the kids going to prom, which is they're very innocent kids. And basically their prom dates like are just really pressure them in a, in an over the top way to, to drink. Right. They're like, yeah, why don't you drink? Right. The thing I like about the kids, those teenagers in Mm -hmm. particular is that we're, we tend to see rich kids with a lot of entitlement issues Mm -hmm. and sure they have arrogance and they're cocky and they think they're the best, but Chloe and Preston are so scared of everything that they have no repressively polite. Yeah. Yeah. And they're so naive and they don't want to put themselves through anything that they don't understand. Yeah. That's a good point. That is a, pretty unique take on rich kids. I got to think Mike White knew somebody like this, right? You know what I would love to do? I would love to put those two characters in the Euphoria High School. I still haven't watched Euphoria. Well, needless to say, there's a lot of drugs, a lot of sex, (laughs) a lot of drama. And I would love to just see these blowout fights that the kids have on Euphoria and Preston and Chloe sitting in the corner, probably peeing their pants. Wow. They would be horrified. Um, and, uh, Liam Ben's best sex obsessed, best friend is the chaperone on prom night to make sure no funny business happens. Ted is skeptical of Liam being the chaperone as he compares it to hiring R Kelly to babysit, which in 2004, I was like, wow, that is, uh, I mean, I'm sure he had some controversy at that point, but that is prophetic. Um, The tape had already come out. Oh, okay. At that point. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, it's one of those things where it's like I watch, uh, you know, there's there's like an early Family Guy joke about Stewie escaping from Kevin Spacey's basement. And it's one of those things where it's like, you know, so many people in Hollywood like already know these things before anyone actually gets in trouble. It's kind of crazy to me, you know? Yeah. The, the cycle of, oh, they put out good art, but so we're not going to say anything like yikes we should if only people were watching cracking up to hear that joke exactly then they would have judgment they would have stopped buying r kelly's records all the way back then um Mm -hmm. and then the episode ends with amy sedaris passed out drunk on the couch and john c Riley has had one too many so he's gonna stay in their guest house he tries to hook up with leslie and of course Ben and Ted don't let that happen. Uh, But also Leslie doesn't let it happen. She's like, wait, I'm married. I didn't know this was happening. Even though like everyone else knew that's what was happening. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, it features John C. Riley singing, which I always like. Yeah. He has a, he has a good croon. Oh yeah. He does. I love Mm -hmm. walk hard. And yeah, he's got a very interesting higher register. Where yeah. it's like he has to go up and do it's not quite a falsetto, but it's not quite his full voice either. He really and it's like a little haunting. He's got a I love his voice. I love John C. Yeah. Riley. I love you, John C. Riley. Please email one and done pod at gmail.com. Please, John C. Riley. Hit us up on Twitter at one and done TV. 
hit us up on Instagram at one and done TV. <laughs> Please, John C. Riley, Venmo me at Hamilton any amount of money. <laughs> and with that, uh, that is our exposition dump. dump. All of the all six episodes that aired are on YouTube in really terrible quality. Oh yeah, it's but bad. But it's uh, bad quality. The middle four episodes are better than the first and the last one. That's true. With that, let's go to a quick commercial break before we come back with the Dunzo Awards. And now a word from our sponsors. It's time for the Dunzo Awards. The Dunzo Awards are superlatives that we give out to all of our shows. It could be the best, it could be the worst, it could be the most, it could be the weirdest. Whatever it is, we have decided that these elements need particular recognition. And they are going to get it. They are going to get it. And each of us have two Dunzos to give out to, cracking up. Ian, please tell me, what are you giving your first Dunzo to? My first Dunzo Award goes to the show as a whole, which is the clumsiest intro award. That's right. The clumsiest? The intro is so just like chopped together in this weird way. And the exposition. Oh, do you mean the credits? Like the opening titles? Yes. The opening. Oh, okay. Like the, uh, yeah, intro. I'd say I always think of those as like opening titles or opening credits. Oh. I was like, I, I thought you were talking about like the intro to like the show, like the first like Are you two saying minutes of to our show? No. No. Are you talking about a cold open, John? Like Malcolm in the no. Middle? No, no, no. No, no. Sorry. Yeah. So it's like the opening credits are, they're just like cut together very strangely. And even they get out the exposition at the beginning, but they speed up. Uh, Jason Schwartzman's voice a little bit. And he's like, I'm a psychology student living with the Beverly Hills family to help out with their youngest son. Turns out he's the least of my problems. But da 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 cracking up. Hey! And it's like, what just happened? Like, even though the way it's spliced together visually is kind of strange, it just, it just felt like it was slapped together really late and by committee. I, I, I hate yeah. it. That's fair. It is. It has a weird font too. Mm-hmm. Like each of the actors have this sort of like drop shadow on it, but yeah. also it's kind of yellow too. I don't really know what to make. I would it. go as far as to say it is yellow, and that's just your color blindness. That is very accurate. I didn't want to. I didn't want to make it. I never want to make definitive statements about colors. I always try to skirt around it a little. Yeah, every ep- the drinking game when people listen to One and Done TV is uh, when's John going to mention his colorblindness? It'll come up at some point. I didn't mention my colorblindness that time. You brought it up. It'll come up at some point. Okay, well, colorblind, 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 colorblind. Take four shots. Uh, oh, boy, but I don't drink anymore. Uh, <laughs> John, why don't you get to your first Dunzo Award? My first Dunzo goes to... The least necessary character. Wow. That award goes to Liam. Liam? Yeah. Liam. 
dude, we need to talk about Liam as a character. <laughs> so Liam is in every episode. David Walden is in every all of the all of the six episodes. Mm-hmm. It's a weird sort of dynamic because Jason Schwartzman is the voice of reason for the Shackleton family. He is the one that they play their sort of neuroses off of, and he fires back. Then what Ben does is he takes those neuroses and then confers with Liam, who is also in his own weird world where he's constantly just talking about hooking up and going down to Mexico and uh, spring break and getting high. And I just don't know why he's there. Well, also the weird thing is too, he's another psych student. So he'll sprinkle in every once in a while, some point about psychology. And you're Mm -hmm. like, wait, when did you have, when did you have a thought that was not about trying to hook up with somebody for a second? Like, how did that come from? Where did that come from? other than the writer needed to put it in there right now. Like, because yeah. they need Jason Schwartzman to comment on it, you know? Exactly. It's He's commenting on something that isn't instrumental to the story itself. It's it's just like the Liam show. Liam whenever is he's there. the grossest aspect of the America American pieification of this show. I just feel like that's so 1999 to 2006 – is just there was a lot of comedy that was about prom and trying to get laid and this adolescent um, obsession hunt for it where it's like we need to do this or I don't know just an excuse to get girls in bikinis but it's a very specific 1999 to 2006 feel to it it's this weird sort of conduit for in my eyes just gross studio executives that want to talk about women's physical appearance yeah and then also i mean am i crazy in it not to make you remark on color again but like (laughs) isn't there just something where it's like all that type of comedy has like a similar color palette to it like just yeah. a similar feel. It's like all the women look the same. All the guys look the same. All the bikinis and the shirts look the same. You know, sometimes there's a puka shell necklace. Uh, <laughs> earlier on, there's spiked frosted tips. Later on, there's swooshy hair. But like it all just looks and feels the same. Icky. Icky. It that, it, yeah, it's that same sort of ickiness to it. It's It's a... It's a grime that I don't want on my soup. I wanna I wanna get underneath that like thin layer of mm-hmm. just like filament that sometimes mm-hmm. forms on the top of soup. And I wanna get to why I'm actually here, which is the liquid gold that's underneath it. Liam's just a bunch of he's just a pudding skin <laughs> on my chicken broth. <laughs> Said perfectly. Said perfectly. Uh, so I have issues with Liam. I have issues with most Liams in general. Uh, if there's a Liam out there that's listening, know that somewhere I have problems with you. Do you hate uh, the Scottish character Liam in High Fidelity? Yeah. Yeah. And on some level. On for some sure. level, I Scottish do. Scottish Liams well. in general, too, are really hard to digest. 
I hate them, especially the ones I've known most of my life. Um, my second Dunzo Award goes to the biggest waste of a guest star, which oh, is, of course. Okay. Now, there are a lot of guest stars in the show. There's Zoe Deschanel. There is Jack Black. There is Kyle Gass. There's John C. Riley. There's Amy Sedaris. And there is there anyone else I'm missing? Not that I can think of. All right. Well, obviously, the... the biggest waste of a guest star is Amy Sedaris. Yeah. She has a funny piece of headgear on. She has two lines. And other than that, she has maybe a little bit of physical comedy by passing out drunk. But, like, what a good pair of John C. Riley and Amy Sedaris. Like, I would watch a movie starring the two of them. They would be, mm-hmm. they could be such a good comedy duo. And her presence is so wasted. And it's not like they don't know that she's super funny. Like, at this point, Strangers with Candy had come out. You yeah. know, they had, I don't remember what her and Colbert's sketch show on HBO was called in the 90s, but. Oh, root. Oh God. Root something. Yeah. Like root 45 or something. Um, she is so funny. And I just, I, I was so excited when I saw her and I was so disappointed when they just didn't give her much to do. Mm -hmm. I fully agree with that. I, though that headgear was, was pretty great. Yeah, it was. And and that's the kind of stuff she thrives with is a funny Mm -hmm. piece of headgear. Like that. But instead of it being, uh, you know, a badge of honor that she could uh, fl- ta- like tout around, it uh, turned into a muzzle. And that was unfortunate. Wow. I would have said tool instead of badge of honor, but uh, muzzle is good. Well, I had already started to say the B sound. Uh, mm. And then I just kind of rolled with it after that. Right. Like it would have been a good tool with her to play for her to play with comedically. But instead, Absolutely. it just turned into a muzzle. Mm-hmm. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking stuff. My second Dunzo goes to the character I wish I had seen more from. And that would go to Chloe. Oh. Everyone in the show has, feels, at least their game feels pretty well defined. Chloe there was more to her that I wanted to see and I didn't quite know what it was. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it in the six episodes that were aired and that we watched, but I know that there's something underneath that. And I think, uh, Caitlin walks wax does a good job with what she's given, but I know that if the show were to go on, I would hope that if the show were to go on, we would see something a little bit more about what, her deal is and how she can evolve. And so, yeah, that, she is pretty, um, one note, but the, and reactionary too. Yeah. It's not that's like the she's thing that given got me. much of a storyline ever. She's just, yeah. Reacting to, to what's going on. Yeah. Preston is pretty one note too, but at least he's got some, you know, there's an episode where Liam has tried to set. Oh, it's the sex episode where Liam sets, Preston up with a with a sex worker, and to no, try to get. No, I pet. think it's his friend that's a real skank. Oh, that was it. Yeah, he said Ugh. he knows some easy God, I hate women. Liam's. Yeah, Ugh. Liam's are the worst. And uh, yeah, that episode. Um, 
what reminded me of licorice pizza because it made me wonder if the age of consent in California is 16. <laughs> He's 15 in licorice pizza. Yeah, but he turns 16. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. At the end. Um and in this, like, he's like, we got to get you laid. And I'm like, I got a friend who's a skank and she's in college. And I'm like, he is 16. That skank will get arrested. Yeah. Maybe that was Liam's uh, sort of underlying motivation, too. Maybe, maybe he didn't like that friend of his and wanted her to get arrested. This is like a perfect example of how, like... In media, it's so glamorized for young high school dudes to get laid by, like, older women or, like, guys just love getting laid. No one's going to turn anything down. And it's like, um, no, people are very specific with their sexual preferences and nobody wants to be told to do something they don't want to do. Yeah, especially someone like Preston, who's, who's an HSP. Know what an HSP is? No. Highly sensitive person. He is a highly sensitive person. And I do not like that he is pushed into this situation by Liam, who has an awful name and is awful. Yeah. Again, when you hear the name Liam, you just want to run the other direction. But isn't that aspect of it also like that is the America American pieification of comedy at this point? They're just trying to force all these high school horniness onto everybody. Yeah. And uh, in case you couldn't tell, Ian is plugging his uh, manifesto, which is called the American Piification of, Amer- of the Country. The American Piification of America and its territories. <laughs> we, all, we all talk about how American pie affected Guam. That's right. There are enough people don't talk about how American Pie affected Guam. <laughs> and that's what you're here for. Okay, John. So that's both our Dunzos are given out, and I feel very satisfied. What's something we haven't talked about yet or just a thought about the show overall? What do you the, the show is special? I think the tone of it is really unique and interesting. It has a, I guess the big thing that we haven't really talked about in general is this show has jokes. It does. And these jokes slap a lot of the time. And it has actors that can really deliver the jokes too. Yeah. Shooter McGavin, there are a couple of his lines that I just think, I'm just like, no one else could pull this off. Like, I'd be like, this isn't even that good of a joke. But he really yeah. does it. Like, he really commits to this stupid dance dancing thing he's doing that I'm sure some executive gave them the note and was like, oh, have him dance. And I was like, wow, that is not an easy thing to f- be forced to do. But he, he did it. Yeah. And Molly Shannon, too, that character could be so samey. Mm-hmm. throughout the entire thing but she brings so many levels in her delivery in her physical actions there's during the the episode where she's the cheerleader and mere minutes after she's pulled out like 
Mary Catherine Gallagher level acrobatics on a basketball mm-hmm. court. She has this one great delivery of this line, which of course I'm going to butcher terribly, but she's talking about how, because Tanner has come back from his art contest and she feels bad for having sort of suppressed him in his artistic endeavors and Tanner and she's saying, and I'm sorry for how I treated you. You know, I thought I was just worried about being ridiculed for all of my bad cheers, but it turned out that I was an artistic genius all along. And I just love how she takes something so sweet, but makes it still very self-indulgent and egotistical. And Mm. she knows how to, she, it's, she knows how to walk the line, mm-hmm. but she also can jump wildly from one side of the line to the other and still like be on that. Yeah, it made me think of um, – so sometimes when it's big characters like this, it is such a fine line between good acting and bad acting. Like mm-hmm. Natalie and I have been rewatching, or really watching for the first time as an adult – uh, third Rock from the Sun. Have you ever watched it? No. Because I, I suggest you do because... I'm not going to, but go ahead. I, seriously. I mean, check out an episode because, John, I it do. is very goofy. And so the premise is they're aliens on Earth, right? And they're just mm-hmm. trying to learn about Earthlings. So people say everyday expressions and they take them very literally, which in most contexts wouldn't be that good of a joke or it'd be too old of a style, but because they're aliens, it really works. And John Lithgow has some of the most over the top expressions, reactions, goofy faces, like, you know, just like stuff like that, that you'd be like, anyone else doing this would be panned for this, but because it's John Lithgow and because we know he's an incredible actor and he doesn't need to do this, but he's choosing to something about that makes it hilarious. And you get that out of shooter McGavin and Molly Shannon. And I mean, Jason Schwartzman, maybe a little bit, but you know what I mean? Jack black too, to a certain extent in his episode. For sure. When Jason Schwartzman has his sort of, you know, flights of fancy when he's not, when he doesn't need to be the straight person mm-hmm. in the show, like he delivers. He delivers when he is uh, in the pilot, when he is blaming Dorsa for pooping on the furniture. He delivers when he is, gets super competitive in this basketball game episode. And when he, he and the parents get really high during the scared straight episode. Mm-hmm. He knows how to work his own appeal and turn it into something unexpected, but still relatable yeah. or at least realistic. He knows how to, he knows how, they all know how to ground the goofy, I think. Yes. And the other side of really goofy comedy is playing incredibly crazy situations or a crazy line or whatever, like playing it straight. And Jason Schwartzman doesn't just play it as if it's absolutely real. He spins it with his own personal sensitivity, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, I mean, very much the way he plays almost all characters. But yeah, um, 
it's it's hard to do. It's hard to take an insane situation or an insane character and to play it with absolute dignity and respect and with no winking at the camera. Yeah. And they'll those are like the two sides really to play over the top comedy. Other other if you try to be in the middle, it, it usually doesn't work. Yeah. And I think I think for this show, this side of that that sort of idea that you were just talking about works the best because if they did do the the multicam big reaction sort of thing, it won't play as well given the growth that Mike White and these writers probably wanted to get out of these characters. Like you want them to learn. A, it's when it comes to the lessons of the show, I like that it's a two steps forward, one step back situation. Mm-hmm. They're never fully changed by anything. There's always something that still is lingering underneath the surface that needs to be fixed, which just makes the potential for it that was sort of squandered a little bit more tough to swallow when you're evaluating the show as a whole. Yeah, it's kind of like at least one of them has a light bulb moment and everyone else has to like consider it at least. Yes, they they recognize that there's a sensitivity to it and a, a love and sort of, especially because it's family dynamics mm-hmm. too, and it's not friends, that you can't just be, you can't just walk away from it. You have to address it. And the way that they address the zany stuff in general, it, it comes from a place of, you know, love and understanding even when it's not the because it's never the right thing to do. I, I think that I I wrote down a line that I think is uh, good for this point. Uh, when you know it's the trophy room and they have all these um, athletic trophies, but then at the end Tanner wins an art competition, which oh I know what you're finally about. Okay, Tanner has something, and so they're like now it's not just the trophy room; it's the trophy slash creepy art room. <laughs> and they're like, he thinks he's including him, but he's also making fun of him, you know, without realizing yeah. it. Exactly. And so it's like, There's you get the full... lesson, but not the full lesson. Yeah. And that's where I think the show plays the best. Yeah. Is when people are trying and missing the mark. And that makes me happy. And one one uh, last point I want to make here is that this, uh, you know, the lessons, right? They Every episode does start with like, hey, here's this problem. We need to have a big conversation about it. Now we have to do all these wacky stuff. Now we have to learn a lesson from it. And that does get a little tired and formulaic to me where I was like, how much of this can you really do? How much of this can you really change before it gets old? Uh, so I was a little skeptical of that as a whole. And it it also made me wonder really like, I couldn't tell if Mike White was trying to make a sitcom or a spoof of a sitcom. Does that make sense? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's playing with a sitcom. But I think it, it at its core, it's still a sitcom. It's still a sitcom-y sitcom. Yes. Although... I don't think it's... There's no real subversive elements to it, though it does play with expectations, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, But then... So I, I had all these feelings about, like, it felt kind of like two different things to me that didn't quite 
marry each other. Uh, and then I did some digging and realized that there were some reasons it felt disconnected, which we can talk about right after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. Okay, welcome back. So, John, Cracking Up aired in 2004, and a young 12 to 13-year-old boy named Ian Hamilton loved watching the show. Loved it. I loved the show so much, and it was just crazy to me, and it was, I I don't know. It, it, was, it was just crazy. It was exactly what I was looking for at the time. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden it was just gone one day. It was, mm. I couldn't find it. There weren't commercials for it anymore. It was over. And it was, of course, one and done. As it turns out, there was quite, there was a lot of problems behind the scenes. The problems start with the title, Cracking Oh, up. please say it. Please say it. We're both thinking the same thing. So there is a... 2006, I believe, satire of the TV industry called The TV Set. It stars David Duchovny, Sigourney Weaver, uh, a real, uh, oh, damn it. A veritable, a veritable Babette's Feast. Babette's Feast. Thank you. A veritable Babette's Feast of Babette. uh, actors. Thanks. And it's all about the development of a sitcom and all the notes that it goes through. And... There's a point at the end of the show where they change the title. Uh, It's supposed to be called The Wexler Chronicles. It turns into Call Me Crazy. And that's because uh, basically they show this focus group of someone talking to a random person in a mall. And they're running through a couple different uh, potential titles for the show. Would you watch a show called this? this? Would you watch a show called this? And they say, would you watch a show called Call Me Crazy? And the guy in the mall goes, yeah. Because it's like, the guy's effing crazy. Because the guy's like crazy. Like, yeah, I'd yeah. watch that. I'd watch it. And that's how I feel like this show's title came about. I wish we knew if this was the original title. I don't think it was, though. Yeah. Actually, so, there was even an original pilot, which had a different main actor. So it wasn't Jason Schwartzman and a different child. And supposedly, oh. the original pilot was darker than the new one as well. I would love, love, love to see So going into this, uh, Mike White was given a deal by Fox to develop something for them. And apparently he really just wanted the money to develop the pilot. He didn't actually want to make a TV show. But as he described it in a 2013 interview with Mark Maron, which in order to do the research, I finally got a Stitcher Premium account. (laughs) This is the thing that finally got me over to Stitcher Premium. Um but he basically says he wanted it to fail and it just kind of kept failing upward. Every stage of development, he just kind of played along and didn't really want it to go forward. And it just kept getting picked up and kept getting picked up and kept getting noted to death. So Mike White was also a writer on Freaks and Geeks. And he talked about how his style, which is just being very, he's very specific. He is very mathematical about it. It's all story-wise, character-wise. It's 
this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. And he takes out anything unnecessary that he feels. And, but it's, it's almost like a, um, an equation to him and working with Judd Apatow, he hated giving Judd a script and then Judd would be like, oh, I really like this part of it. Judd would give it to like three other writers. They'd change it. And even though Mike White's given the credit for three episodes, he doesn't feel ownership over them. And it actually bothers him what they did with them, you know? So he actually is credited with writing all six of these episodes. And it basically drove him insane to have to deal with all these network notes and all these people messing with his creative process and his scripts at every level of development from every producer, from every executive. So there were a lot of, there was a lot of executive meddling. And then I don't even think they're in the earlier episodes, but I think they're in the later episodes. Did you see Christopher Miller and Phil Lord were, uh, Consulting consulting producers. producers. So Mm -hmm. I think they kind of just kept trying to bring people in to make it, you know, more of a sitcom to punch up jobs. Right. To I'm positive that Fox is the reason that this was American pieified. I cannot imagine that Liam was as big of a presence in the original script. I can't imagine Liam being a presence in the script. I could maybe I, see some, like, if Mike White did it, it'd be more about, like, psychosexuality, like Freud or something. He'd be a guest. He wouldn't be in the opening titles that you found to be so chaotic. Yeah, or he'd at least be more cerebral, right? Yes, yes. Um. So, basically, this led to Mike White having a nervous breakdown. He, um... Wow was really stressed out about it, about the process. Every week it was killing him. They put him on after American Idol once or twice because Fox was trying to put shows after American Idol to retain the 26 million viewers they'd get, but there would always be a 10, 16 million, you know, maybe 20 person, 20 million person drop off from American Idol to the next show. And I mean, they 24 apparently was the only show to actually get like a good American Idol bump, but you know, arrest development failed. Other things failed to, to retain that attention. Yeah. There is a certain populism that comes with an American Idol Mm -hmm. show that lends itself to a sort of rah, rah, sis, boom, bah, tale like 24 but when you are asking an audience with a specific tone to kind of go along the ride with you you can't you know throw something out to everyone and expect everyone to latch on i think that's a very alienating strategy just from a network programming perspective yeah i mean the people that come to see reality shows and competitions like shows like that are not necessarily the people that are looking for wacky comedies or not necessarily the people that are looking for gripping dramas. You know, I mean, it's like we talked about at the beginning of the show, John, sometimes we're watching TV just to turn our brains off, you know, or to get amped up about something that doesn't truly matter like sports, you know? Yeah. 
And that is really something that's changed just in general in marketing over the past, you know, few decades. As it's very much an early 2000s to now phenomenon. Yes. Yeah. It is a, there was this thing that you could get the attention of everyone all at once Mm -hmm. and everyone could be treated as the public was seen as one entity as opposed to people with varying interests and experiences Mm -hmm. with the emergence of the internet and uh, a corner, a veritable Babat's feast, Babat, Babat's feast of, (laughs) Ian hates me right now, of, of streaming services and content. We could create, things that are for people with more personalized interests. And that's, I think, where a show like this with its original vision would be able to excel. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a good comedy. It's very much like it kind of feels like Malcolm in the Middle. You know, like it it could have had an audience if it was given a real chance. I mean, its own audience, not 26 million people, but it could have had 10, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. Back in the day. I think... I think if they didn't, yeah, if they didn't do something like lump it in with the American Idol crowd, if they, if they didn't measure it, it against on, that, measure it against it. Exactly. That's that's a perfect way to say it. Yes. They it it could have gotten its own audience if they recognized what that audience could be mm-hmm. as opposed to just like, again, the population. It had a population of people that could enjoy it, but it wasn't the quote unquote general public. Right. And so Mike White was having a very hard time mentally with all of this stress he was getting from everybody, all of the notes, you know, and in hindsight, he feels like he was just in a really bad place. He's like, to let a sitcom on Fox spin me so far out of control that I felt like I was going to die you know, it was like, what is your foundation? What is your sense of self that you could lose yourself so much in this? He was he was really grappling with that. Um, and so apparently he wrote uh, what he called an FU fax and sent it to many Fox executives. And it was all like, you're ruining the show. You're the reason the show is failing. This isn't my fault. This is on you. You took away everything good and you put in everything bad and I hate you and how dare you do this to me? How dare you do this to the like the cast and the crew? And apparently he made uh, the president of Fox cry. So that's pretty good. He like went in for his meeting with her the next day and her, her secretary was like, uh, she'll be with you in a minute. She's just uh, still crying over the facts you sent her. Man. I mean, when you look at Mike White, too, you think that guy is an intimidating presence. Oh, yeah. Yeah. With his lean, uh, pale white body and bug eyes. You're like, boy, mm-hmm. this <laughs> this guy could really he's a real bruiser. The term enforcer has been thrown around. Uh, Dwayne Johnson-esque. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically his therapist said he was in such a state that he had to leave now he was recommended to go to a mental hospital of sorts. He walked in, but he said it was a place that literally people were like shuffling around the hallways, like they were lobotomized. So he went to some place that was more like drug and alcohol rehab 
for celebrities and he was like this isn't the right place for me either and he literally like ran out of there and fled in his car so that they didn't uh lock him away and he just basically got really into like buddhism and meditating and a lot of self-help stuff and um that experience and that uh all of his getting himself together back together mentally is what he ended up turning into the show enlightened with Laura Dern on HBO, which was two seasons. So Mm -hmm. somehow that, I mean, that is such a specific show and somehow that lasted longer than cracking up, you know? Yeah. Cause it was an HBO show and dude, it is so hard to watch though. I like that show, but it is such an emotional roller coaster. Like Laura Dern is perfect at playing someone who like her character is very sweet but then she'll go through such emotional trauma that like her eyes change you know her whole physicality changes Mm -hmm. it's just it's too much to watch frankly like it's it's really good and really difficult um yeah so then i mean apparently when he like went to rehab and all this stuff all the Fox executives were very supportive of him and were like, just go take care That's of nice. yourself and and we'll handle the show and don't worry about it. And even though he had been so, he'd sent that fax, they were still very like, we love you and we care about you. And Well, that fax was sent by a guy on the edge. That's true. For sure. But uh, I don't really give them the credit to, to know that. Uh, no, no. But, but uh, then the show was canceled like three or four days later. So yeah. he'd... For the best. Right. Didn't really have to worry about it anymore. No one. I mean, so officially, they'd probably say low ratings, even though, again, they're ratings that people would kill for now. And, uh, you know, it was just really dysfunctional creatively. It was a mess. And he tried to hold it together as best as he could. And, you know, it's so interesting to me that it's a Mike White show, because as a kid, I've always thought of it all these years as a Jason Schwartzman show. And then mm-hmm. uh, I've only now learned the whole Mike whiteness of it all. And it's, it's really, really interesting. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a cautionary tale. It's a veritable and... Babette's feast of Mike White's being interesting. That was, that was a little shh, forced. Shh, shh, shh. Don't tell anyone and they won't know. Yeah, we won't, we'll keep it in. So Ian, would you renew cracking up? I would. I feel like it was really finding its footing near the end. It did have ways to transcend its sitcomness, uh, ways to, even by episode six, you know, uh, sex crazed Liam was being put into situations that were out of his control. You know, like it wasn't just some sexy, glamorous joke guy that they probably thought he would be. So it was finding ways to play with uh, the structure, play with the themes, play with the characters, change everything up. And I I think it could have been something really special. And uh, I absolutely would have renewed it. Yes. Mm-hmm. John, this begs the question from me to you. 
which is, would you renew? I would renew. Wow. With some caveats. <gasps> caveats, go on. I think the show would need to evolve. Um, and in general, I would be worried generally for Mike White's health. Yeah, I mean. And so I think that even though I think it's a great showcase for him and what he can do, I think that he would need to leave the show. Let's Okay, let's pretend for a second that he was good and he could stay on. Then, yeah, I would say keep him there, let it happen. But in its state, it is not sustained. How do you, um, so, yeah, how do you speak more to how you feel like the show would have to evolve? I think that we'd need to tone back Liam. I think we would need to build up the family. I, like you said, there's a certain structure of something happens, the family needs to address it, they take the wrong lesson from it, they learn the right lesson from it. We're going to need to change up the formula of that a little bit as time Mm -hmm. goes on and make it more about how the family relates to each other like they do in that sixth episode. Mm -hmm. The thing that stands out for me about that last episode is that we start the show, the pilot heavily suggests that Ted cheated on Leslie. They never say it, though, I don't think. That Ted cheated on Leslie. No, I was really glad they dropped that. I I am too, because the sixth episode is all about how Ted is super insecure about his relationship with Leslie because of these this relationship that she had in high school. Mm-hmm. And we're going to need more storylines like that. Not just this is this person's neuroses. It's how these neuroses are like not just affecting other people, but comp- how people are complimenting each other. And it needs to be a little bit more about the interpersonal. Yeah. Area and how in order to make how it- the neuroses grew and how to fix them. I mean, it really I think it really could have been a show about, you know, psychology in in a, in a proper yeah. way where it's like these are the problems or this is what's happening. This is the way you're reacting to what's happening. This is why you're reacting that way. Let's. Feel out. Let's figure out a better way for you to handle this instead of blowing up at everybody. Absolutely. So, if Mike White was healthy, if the show could change, absolutely, I'd want to see more of it because I just genuinely enjoyed spending time with these characters in these situations. Absolutely. And I guess any final thoughts before we wrap things up? Uh, yeah, one final thought. Mike White is just clearly very into psychology, I guess. Give it a quick Google, people. I assume if his degree isn't in writing, it's in psychology because he said that his first movie, which was his breakout film, Chuck and Buck, came out of reading Freud and talking about dreams being expressions of repressed ambitions. And mm. that is very much what cracking up is about. It's about being repressed and it's about what you really want. And it's about trying to handle the fact that you really want something, but you don't know how to say it or you don't know how to tell the people around you what you want or why you want it. And you're just tamping it all down until Mm -hmm. the powder keg explodes 
then you got a real so, mess on your hands, a veritable Babette's feast of fire and blood. I was supportive of the Babette's feast runner, and now I'm starting to get super you against started it. it. I know, I know. Ah, uh, that's a that's a great thought to to leave us on though. Sans Babette's feast. Uh, so Ian, where can people find us? You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at One and Done TV. You can can email us at oneanddonepod at gmail.com. Absolutely 100%. Do not email oneanddonetv at gmail.com because we don't have that email and we don't know who you're emailing. You can also Venmo me at Hamilton on Venmo. Any amount of money you want to send as you see fit. Uh, please, please, for the love of God, give me money. Um. Did I miss anything? No. I think that's, Did I beg uh, enough? That's you begged. You groveled. It was good. <laughs> yeah. And then I think if you check out How To With John Wilson on HBO Max, that'd be a really great thing for you to do for yourself. For me? Yeah, for you. For everyone. It will be a veritable Babette's feast of enjoyment for you. And let's turn this TV off. Pew. Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media.